All right, it's Christ the King Sunday, as I've mentioned a few times already, the last Sunday on the Christian calendar. And the particular focus of Christ the King Sunday is that Jesus is above all powers, above all earthly, political, and heavenly authorities, above all of our own stubborn personal wills as well. Above all of that, Jesus is king. Our text this evening comes out of the book of Samuel, and it's the passage where David has just been introduced and Saul is being reduced. It's the section that tells the story of how power is transferred from one king, Saul, to God's chosen king, David. And ultimately, it is a story that points to the good news of Jesus, our king. Here's my strategy tonight. So I I know we've got our youth group with us tonight. If you guys want to follow along, here's what to be looking for. First, we're going to explore some kind of historical elements of the passage, right? How did David rise to power? He wasn't part of Saul's family, which means he shouldn't have inherited the throne. And he wasn't a usurper, was he? He wasn't just somebody who came and grabbed power like all the other ancient kings would have done. So what, what are these forces at work? We're going to be paying attention to how maybe there is God at work behind the scenes uh, orchestrating all of this. The second thing I'm going to do is point out some allusions, that is some foreshadowing of how this story about David points us forward to the work and ministry and person of Jesus. And I think it's going to, at least it's helped me, so I'm just going to go on this premise. It's helped me appreciate Jesus more. So that's the second thing you can be looking out for. And third, I'm going to offer us some implications, I think, about what this text says about how we can live today, all right? So those are the three main things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our reigning king, I'm so grateful that you are like the one described in this passage, like King David. I am so thankful that you are the one revealed to us in the Gospels, that you are good and gracious, powerful. And I pray that through this word tonight, you would increase our faith and increase our imagination for what our place is in this world as your followers. Bless you, Lord. Open your word to us tonight. Amen. All right. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. It'll help you not go to sleep too. Um, We're going to read 1 Samuel Chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Yeah, I'm just going to jump back one verse because we need that verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, speaking of David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul And an evil spirit from the Lord terrified him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player of the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, and one prudent in speech. 
and he's handsome to boot. And the Lord is with him. And so Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a jug of wine and a goat, and sent them to Saul by David, his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he's found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So from the outset of this narrative, the the narrator tells us that David's rise and Saul's fall are not the work of just mere political scheming or different factions of government vying for power. There is a clear theological element at work. God has willed the anointing of the king to be taken from Saul and placed on David. More importantly, God has taken his empowering Holy Spirit away from Saul and given it to David. Most troubling, you're probably troubled by this too, from a 21st century Western perspective, is this this additional line that, that Yahweh not only took the spirit from Saul, but then this evil spirit comes from God and torments Saul. What on earth is going on? So let's take these two kind of in turn, the removal of one spirit first and then the sending of this evil spirit second, right? God's spirit empowers us for life. His spirit equips us and enables us, even protects us from evil forces that we probably don't acknowledge on a day-to-day basis, but are there nonetheless. God's spirit is our our life-giving spirit. And Saul is continually making decisions that were deforming his heart. If God's spirit was empowering Saul as he's becoming more and more broken as a man, then God's spirit is actually helping Saul become worse and worse, more corrupted, more dangerous. And if that is true, then the whole nation of Israel is headed for disaster if this empowered, spirit-empowered king is going off the rails. So let's say you have a teenager at home and they get their learner's permit and start driving the family car. It's just like a beater old car. It's not very fast. It just gets you from point A to point B. And they pass their their permit, their, their exam, and so they get their license and you empower them by letting them get their license, right? So this is an empowered teenager now. And things start off well, but then they start making poor choices. They stay out late. They don't call. They get some speeding tickets, some reckless Uh, driving violations. They don't seem to be getting any better. In fact, they're getting worse and worse and worse. They're disobedient, selfish, irresponsible, and they show no signs of remorse or willingness to get better. The worst thing you can do for a kid like that is to say, hey, I'm going to replace the family automobile and get you a 450 horsepower sports car, right? Because that kid If they get in a wreck in the family car, they might be causing cosmetic damage to somebody else's car in a rear ending. But if they're going 150 miles an hour, they're going to kill themselves or somebody else, right? The only responsible thing to do for their safety and the safety of the community is to take away their empowerment, their license. You certainly don't give them a turbocharged sports car. 
The result may be one of two things. You hope it's a wake-up call. You hope that they hit rock bottom and realize, I was stupid, and they come to their senses and come home like the prodigal son, or they steal themselves against you, get even more angry, and keep going down a road of destruction. They open themselves up to darkness. In this story, Yahweh sees Saul going off the rails. He isn't about to supercharge Saul's poor decision, so he won't continue to give his supercharged Holy Spirit to Saul any longer. That much power could do worse damage to Saul, his family, to the nation, and to the world. So Yahweh withdraws his supercharged spirit from Saul and gives it to David. That part, I think, sort of makes sense. But the next bit is a lot harder for us to understand. Saul is then tormented by some evil spirit, and the narrator says that that spirit is from God. Does a loving God, the one that we read about and pray to and sing about, does that, does that God actually send this tormenting spirit on people? What, what is this about? Well, there's a lot going on, as you might imagine, that can partially be explained with a little bit of history and and language. First of all, for example, the Hebrew word we translate as evil, as in the, the phrase evil spirit, usually doesn't mean moral evil like we often think. Like when I think of evil, I think of a nefarious villain in a mystery or, 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 a, or a movie or something like that, or some horrible dictator that just is evil to their core, like morally evil. But the range of meaning in Hebrew is broad and it often carries the sense of a bad mood or a troubling influence. So there's some wiggle room there. While we don't know a whole lot about the nature of this spirit, we do need to make one thing crystal clear and that the evil spirit in this passage or at all, is not of God. The Holy Spirit that was given to David and uh, and taken from Saul is the personal, powerful, Holy Spirit of God. It is God, so to speak. The Holy Spirit is a person, one of the Trinity, a unity with God the Father and God the Son. And the text is clear that the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. But this bad spirit is, of, uh, is not of the Lord, it is from the Lord. So it is not part of himself, right? It's not like there's, there's some evil shadow side to God's personality, and so he takes the good side away and gives bad part of himself. Like God is good all the way through. He doesn't have an evil part of himself to give to anyone. That's an important distinction. But it doesn't quite change the fact that God would allow an evil spirit to bring harm on someone, even if it is just a bad mood. Like, what is up with that? Well, part of the answer comes from how these people understood God, his sovereignty and cause and effect. In their worldview, there was no such thing, or or they didn't write about, at least, secondary causes. They believe that since God is God over the skies and the stars and the sun and the moon, since he's God over everything, that whatever happens under his umbrella of everythingness is from him, right? So um, we're a little bit more nuanced than that. We have secondary causes. Let's say, you know, the the youth group was just up here and um, Titus and Ben thought it would be funny to leave a banana peel up here so that when Pastor Chris is up here preaching, I slip, I fall on my, my backside, right? And I break my coccyx little Uncle Rico. Um, So 
so let's say, so we might say in our Western philosophical thinking, that was a secondary cause that like these guys put this banana peel, I slipped on it, so it's their fault that they left it, then it's my fault that I didn't see it, I slipped on it, I broke my tailbone, and that's an issue. Now, in the ancient Israelite worldview, God did it. Why? Because they didn't see secondary causes. It's just, this is God's world. If this happens, then God did it, or it's from God. You see the, the difference there of how we think versus how they often wrote and thought. Their perspective isn't as nuanced as ours. And here's an important distinction I want to make real clear. I'm not saying that their view or our view is better or worse. It's just different. It's just the way that they saw the world and the way that we see the world. It's the way that they wrote about the world and the way that we write about things in the world. So from their vantage point, it does not matter that Saul brought this upon himself. In the end, it's God's world, and so God did it. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Now, most of us have a hard time squaring that idea with the God that we've made in our own image, a God who's politically correct according to our standards. And a God who's nice, according, of course, to our standards in Bellingham. And a God who is fair, once again, according to my standards and your standards. And I recognize that I am with you in this. I'm a product of my own culture and my own way of thinking. But newsflash, most Christians in the world are not white and Western or postmodern. Most of them are African, Latino, and Asian and so it is important to listen to those voices and see how other people, even contemporary people in the 21st century who are different than us, view passages like this. So here's a quote from the Africa Bible Commentary. Saul had turned his back on God and had become an easy prey for the enemy. Not only had the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, but an evil spirit came into his life. This spirit made him depressed and prompted him to act wickedly and violently. Here's the punchline. To walk away from the presence of God is to walk into darkness. True statement. Okay. So that's how some of our, our scholarly sisters and brothers from the continent of Africa have collaborated and viewed this. And it's not a problem for them. It's like, no, this makes sense to us. Scholar Rick Watts Australian, Westerner, white guy from Regent, so it's all my world, believes that this spirit was sent to cause Saul to fear, or more precisely, to encourage the fear that was already in him. That's a common theme in Scripture. God will often give us over to what we really want. He won't force us to trust him. Oh, he'll coax and encourage. He even has preachers that are encouraging us to do that every Sunday, but he won't force us. And, and I think that that's good news and dignifying, and it's also a warning to us. With Saul, God had done nearly everything possible. He gave him a new heart. He made him a new man. He had given him his Holy Spirit. And yet Saul was continually given over to fear, autonomy, and self-sufficiency, Here's just a few examples from the, the chapters of 1 Samuel leading up to this one. He's hiding behind the luggage in fear when he's to be anointed king. He fears the people rather than waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifice at Gilgal. 
He didn't care about the Ark of the Covenant until he was in a tight spot, and then he tried to use the Ark of the Covenant for his own purposes. When his army was weary, he didn't seek the Lord. He made a crazy, stupid vow and almost had to execute his own son. The people rose up against him and protected Jonathan, his heir, from being killed by Saul. He was disobedient to God when he plundered the Amalekites and kept the best of the spoils for himself rather than obey God. And when he's confronted about his sin, he tried three different times and three different ways to weasel out of taking responsibility. Finally, when he has a sort of confession, it's really just to get Samuel to help him save face in front of the elders. This is the point of the passage, I think. God is directing this transfer of power. His sovereignty allows for personal choices, and those choices matter. And yet, in the large-scale plan, God is going to have his way. He's going to save us. He's going to break in and bring us back into relationship with him one way or another. And I'll tell you what, that's really good news. It might foil your personal plans. It's foiled mine in the past. It's always better than my personal plans. Amen? So now, we have this king in rapid decline, while a new king is still a shepherd boy, tending his flocks outside of a small town. How would David come to be king? He can't just show up and say, hey, guess what? Uh, Back in this little town, Samuel came and anointed me in front of like nobody, and I'm supposed to be king. You think Saul's going to step down? Of course not. Saul would have him killed. And people would just laugh at him. Again, we see God working in and through human choices and circumstances. So Saul is now deeply troubled by this evil spirit coming upon him, causing him to fear and be anxious. Later passages shed more light on his condition. And in modern terms, lots of people have chimed in from the psychology world and said it seems like Saul is is bipolar and, and schizophrenic that he has paranoid schizophrenia. Others might see what people call inner demons creeping up inside of him. He's always been insecure, always been fearful and anxious and naive, and God can work with those qualities. You realize that? Saul's problem isn't that he has mental uh, problems. It isn't that he is fearful. It isn't that he's anxious. I know many of us struggle with lots of those things. God can work with that. God does work through that. Many of the people that you see up here talking to you, maybe one right now, is deeply insecure about how they sound. And some of the people leading our worship teams are terrified every time. You think that they're just naturals. No, nobody's a natural. Like, God can work through our faults, and he can work through our fears. He he can do that with Saul as well. But what he can't do, what he can't do is take our hearts. And so when Saul... Saul has been, has been taking control back in his life rather than giving it over to God. And when we shut him out, when we trust himself, when our weaknesses become highlighted and our negative qualities, uh, they're fed to the point that we become monsters. That's what Saul was becoming. So some people might look at this Saul character and see from a modern perspective that he's got psychological problems, like he's clinically bipolar and schizophrenic. Others might see these inner demons coming up, and still others might see in this passage a demonic influence, like the spirit is pulling strings on this dude 
And in reality, our ideas of the spiritual realm and inner moral struggles and mental health, those things I think are not so separate in reality as we make them out to be. I think there's just a lot more going on in the background. We're much more complicated people. The universe is more complicated than we often give it credit for. And so Saul calls for a musician who can help him with his moods. This was a common practice in the ancient world. And interestingly, I think just in the past few decades, it's being recognized again by the scientific community. Now you can get a degree in music therapy. It's actually, now it's official again. Uh, But David was a music therapist way back. By the end of the passage, we see that God has guided this whole operation. Some servant within Saul's court just happens to know that this dude David is a gifted musician and also happens to be valiant and a warrior and a good communicator and really, really, really good looking. Thank you. And so Saul brings David, the already anointed in secret future king of Israel, into his court. You see the irony, how funny this is, like how God is orchestrating all this. Saul, who's crazy paranoid, who's going to throw spears at David in just a few chapters, invites him right in. Come on, play harp for me. And there, David not only succeeds in helping alleviate Saul's condition, he also learns from an inside perspective, one, how not to lead, because he's watching Saul blow up his his whole kingdom. And he gets how a court works how a government works from an, in, it reminds me of Moses, you know, you think Moses is gone and he, he gets taken in by the Pharaoh's family and think, oh, well, there goes all his Jewish heritage. No, Moses got this amazing education and then God gets a hold of him and takes all of that head knowledge and makes it in, into a wonderful leader. So God has worked within the bounds of human choice to bring about his own will. He's respected human choice without allowing those choices to side rail his ultimate plan. And let's be honest, the fact that God can't be derailed by you and by me or by anyone in our race, in the human you know, species, that is great news because I would screw it up. And frankly, you would too. Like everybody would screw it up. Which brings us to more specific good news. And that is the foreshadowing of Jesus, the King of Kings, right in this passage. You know, the Gospels go to great lengths to show that Jesus is not only Son of God, but also the promised rescuer who is from the line of David. And that means that Jesus is, among all his other titles, King of Kings. You know, it wasn't until recently, studying this passage over the last several months, that I've come to appreciate how important it is that David is introduced second as a healer. We all knew he was a shepherd boy, and that illusion is easy. I mean, Jesus is, I am the good shepherd, right, in John's gospel. Oh, it just makes so much sense. But why this emphasis on Jesus being a healer? And I realized, my, as I allowed my mind to open up to other narratives, other stories out there, the idea of a healing king is everywhere in ancient literature, and even in some modern. Take J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, for example. Near the end of that massive saga, the hobbit Mary, Eowyn, the shield uh, maiden of Rohan, and uh, uh, Faramir are all terribly wounded after this battle uh, with the forces of evil. And they've received wounds from these dark forces, these ministers of the dark lord. And their wounds are more than just cuts. They're the type of wounds from the Nazgul 
that, uh, that has a darkness that's setting in on them. It's not just that they're bleeding out. Those wounds can be packaged, but a darkness is taking over them. They're becoming slowly agents of the dark Lord. And so they're taken to the house of healing in the tower of Minas Tirith. And the powerful wizard Gandalf the White at this point comes and checks in on them. But even he doesn't have the power. All he does is anxiously check on them. And then he goes out and paces and tries to figure out what to do. And then there's this old woman in the story who served in the house of healing longer than anyone else. And I'm completely 100% Uh, at the mercy of Fleming Rutledge, who pointed this out. This is not my own idea, so basically quoting this idea from here on out, Fleming Rutledge. But this old woman says, Would that there were kings in Gondor, as there were once upon a time, they say. For it is said in the old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king could ever be known. Gandalf is stunned that he had forgotten this important point, this important truth, and he runs to find Aragorn, the humble ranger, who is the rightful king of Gondor. Clothed in battle rags, weary from the battles, he comes in graciously, and through his skill in healing, and by a power in his presence, he's able to lift Faramir and Eowyn and Mary out of the shadow of darkness and back into the light of the living. At one and the same time, he heals them and reveals himself to be the true king. David brings comfort to the afflicted, and he lifts the darkness of Saul by skill and by spirit, by his presence and by his anointing. Don't think that David merely played the harp for Saul. David is the writer of the Psalms. I think he was playing the truths of the word of God over Saul. And that's why when I go into a visitation where it's dark or I feel like my simple presence isn't good enough, which is almost every single time, I will probably read scripture if you're laying in a hospital bed. Not because you want to hear the story necessarily, but because there's power in the word of God that isn't in just me or isn't just in a harp. And I wonder if, with Rick Watts here, that David was playing parts of Psalm 20. Maybe he wrote that as he's ministering over Saul. This is the work of a king after God's own heart, a healing king. And so when we see Jesus declaring in Luke chapter 4, like Tommy read earlier, that he's come as the anointed of God to preach the good news to the poor, to open blind eyes and to free the oppressed, to bring jubilee to a land of injustice. And when we see Jesus healing with his word, and when we see evil spirits fleeing his presence, wherever Jesus was, their life followed. It's like whenever you are trusting when you are in Christ. That's when we're fully alive. And in the Gospels, we see at once and the same time that he's not only a king who can heal Jesus, he's not just a king who can heal, he's the king. He's the promised one. He's the one anticipated by the world since the days of David. So if Jesus is king, and the king is healer, what does it mean that you and I are made in God's image? And this is the part where I want to get to the implications of what this text could mean for us. 
As we've seen throughout the series in Samuel, you and I were created as image bearers of God, and now we've learned that God is a king. So if you do the logic, then you and I are in the image of the king. That means you're kings and queens cut out of that mold. Now, for those of you who have been baptized into Jesus, you've also received the Holy Spirit. You're supercharged with God's life inside you, and you have that power for a purpose. Some people in the church have the gift of healing, but all of us are called to be part of the healing process. So here are some implications I want to just draw out real quick. Our ability to heal is always dependent on the invitation of God. Always dependent on the invitation of God. When Saul was king, he got into trouble every time he tried to do God stuff without God's blessing and without God's power. He performed sacrifices. He tried to use the Ark of the Covenant when he wasn't invited by God. And not only was he ineffective, but he hurt himself and he hurt other people. So often we want to fix people and to fix things. We want to fix the whole world. But unless you are Jesus, God probably has not called you to fix the whole world. Rather, he's called me and you to be obedient in small things, the small things that he has invited you into. And my suspicion is that if each of us was obedient to the small things that God's called us into, the world would actually start to be healed. That's, that's my supposition. So if you don't know what God has called you to right now, don't try and fix stuff. Here's what, but here's what you can do. You can always make an effort to not do anything harmful. Okay? So if you don't know what God has called you to, don't do any harm. Apologize quickly, for example, when you've wronged other people. Keep short accounts. That one, you don't have to get a calling from God to do that. Pause before you post or talk or write that email. Ask yourself, is what I'm about to declare or to put out there going to build someone up or tear them down? Will it be constructive or destructive, even if what you are saying is true? Is it tactful, and is it kind? And then, there are the things that Jesus does call us into. And some of you, this is so easy, right? Because you have a vocation of healing. Last week, we prayed for our healthcare people, doctors and nurses and therapists of all kinds, and social workers and mental health professionals, dental people, you have science and skills, technology and experience, and bless you, the world needs you. How could you be, if you're in that field, how could you be more intentional with prayer and presence? Reminding yourself that even though I've got the techniques to heal the ailments, there might be more going on with this person, and that you carry with you the presence of Christ. But you don't need to be in medicine or a therapist to be a healer. You can be a reconciler of broken relationships in your life. And I know for our students, especially as you're entering middle school and high school, this becomes more and more a front kind of in-your-face issue, more backbiting and bickering and gossip because it just happens, right? You know it happens. 
So how can we be Christ in those situations, stay above the fray, encourage our friends who are not talking to each other to talk to each other and get out of the middle, for example? How can we, how can we help foster building of relationships and, and strengthening of relationships rather than tearing them down? And you can be a voice for uh, those who have marginalized voices, those who don't get as much of a voice in society, a voice for justice. And every single one of us can be engaged in the powerful work of prayer. Our healing king hears and answers prayer. In fact, it is to the healing king that we're going to turn now. Because this is our healing prayer service, the fourth Sunday of the month. And Charles Hansen and I are going to be up here at these kneeling bitches. We would love to pray for you, to intercede for you. Not because we're great prayers, or even because necessarily of our lives. But we're praying to the great healing king. And that makes all the difference. So I'm going to just close this in prayer. I'll invite Charles to come forward and the worship team when you guys are ready. And then I invite you to take advantage of this, of this moment, of this time, of this space, to come forward for healing if you have a physical or spiritual or emotional something that you'd like prayer for, or to simply pray with a neighbor or be in silent prayer as the, as the worship team is playing. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the king who heals. Would you draw out of us those deep, those deep things, Lord, that are below the surface. Would you touch those deep places in us that are beyond the superficialities and heal those broken areas? And Lord, would you expand our imagination for what it looks like to be a people who are called to be healers in the world, your agents in the world, Bless you, Lord, for this dignifying and high calling. Amen.